From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. This time, we'll hear about a remote climbing expedition that went all wrong. If you want to try rock climbing, this is not the story that's going to make you want to do it. Mo Beck started climbing at a young age. So I started climbing 20 years ago now. I went to a really cool Girl Scout camp that actually had climbing outside on real rock. And it's something that always stuck with me because rock climbing isn't easy for anybody, right? Like we're not really meant to rock climb as humans. But then I was born without my left hand, so it seemed extra ridiculous for me to like rock climbing. And I was kind of attracted, especially as a kid, I was attracted to things that were ridiculous and and things that I shouldn't do. So it quickly just became my sport. And then through college and adulthood, I started taking it more and more seriously and started competing. And then about three years ago, um, I would say I started pursuing it professionally. Now, Mo has won gold in national and global climbing tournaments, but most of those happened on short trips. So when a friend asked if she wanted to go on a multi-day expedition to climb a remote peak in what's called the Cirque of the Unclimbables, she hesitated. The Cirque is a chain of mountain peaks in northern Canada, think almost the Arctic Circle. And it's one of the oldest parts of the Rocky Mountains. So the rock there is just extra flaky, extra falling apart. And so it's this wild and remote setting that has these sheer 2,000, 3,000 foot granite faces available for climbing. Back when it was originally surveyed by European mapmakers, the surveyors were just like, whoa, those are unclimbable, crazy mountains. No one should ever go up there. And then I think once climbers got a hold of those maps and saw something called the unclimbables, they went, hey, sounds like a good time. And so it's a very intimidating name. However, they are quite climbable. So it's really my buddy Jim's idea. It's the Lotus Flower Tower is one of the peaks and the main route on that is considered one of North America's 50 classic climbs. One of the top climbs everyone has to do, but not a lot of people can do because it is so remote. So when he was able to put the pieces together to do this rock climb, you know, he invited me. And at first I said, no, it's not my style. It doesn't sound that fun. It looks wet and cold and miserable. I usually like shorter climbs close to the road that are, they're hard technically. So you're using your muscles and your body in a different way in your brain. Whereas this style of climbing is you're base camping for a couple of weeks and you're spending nights on the wall and it's just thousands of feet of climbing versus 80 feet of climbing that I'm used to. But that's not really a good reason to say no to an adventure. So I said, yes. We could have done it alone, but instead we decided to make a little film about it because Jim is a baloney amputee. He lost his leg in a climbing accident. Um, And he decided it would be kind of fun to make a film out of it. And so we brought Taylor, um, who's younger. He's a filmmaker in his early 20s. And then we also invited Jim's friend, Pat, who probably of any human has spent the most time up there. So he was acting as kind of a guide. And the plan was we would climb in two groups of two, Jim and I on one team and Pat and Taylor on another team. 
Things went wrong pretty early. So our flights all arrived on time, but you fly into Whitehorse, Yukon Territories, which is a very small town with pretty much two flights in a day. And one of Taylor's bags didn't arrive. And then one of Pat's bags didn't arrive. Taylor's bag eventually showed up, but the bag that stayed missing was Pat's. And that had a bunch of our climbing gear, all of his personal climbing gear. And it was just, it was gone. Air Canada had no idea where it was, what city it was in. The last time they had scanned the tag, it was in a city that they don't even fly through. So who knew what happened there? He ended up having to spend $1,000 at the local mountaineering shop to get a harness that didn't fit and some gear that wasn't ideal. We also had a tent in that bag that went missing. So we had to go to Canadian Tire, which is the Canadian Walmart. And so poor Taylor did this entire trip in a $100 flimsy summer car camping tent. And it was just kind of that. We were stuck on the front end because of weather. The helicopter couldn't fly us in for a week. So we lost a week of field time just sitting and waiting for an opportunity to go in. The week passed, and when the weather cleared and they could finally fly in, things seemed to be looking up. So we get dropped off by a helicopter in these meadows called Fairy Meadows, and they really are magical. It's just green moss everywhere, marmots running around, rivers and little streams bubbling. The sun was shining, and they were in a place called Fairy Meadows. Everything seemed great. They spent a day resting and getting ready. And the next day, climbing day, they woke up to cold, wet rain. We had a limited amount of time and supplies to be in the field before our plane came to pick us back up. So we kind of knew we had to go for it. And we knew we were moving a little slow. We had originally planned on doing the entire climb in one day, and then we decided to do it in two since we had a hunch we were going to move a little slower. And that meant spending the night about 1,200 feet up this 2,000-foot face. There was definitely just this weird dynamic. Taylor was kind of the boss of the trip because he managed to get the funding for it, and he had the vision for the film. And so it was kind of his job to say, hey, Pat, I need you to rig the rope here so I can film off of it and to say, hey, Jim and Mo, I need you to redo this move or, or do this interview so I can make this film. But Pat would often be like, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. I think we should do it this way. Or no, we should wait till later to do that. And so I don't I think Taylor, coming from more of a studio film background, wasn't used to a lot of variables that come with filming in an environment like that. So it was just kind of this like, you know, one of them was the boss with the checkbook and one of them was the boss with the mountain background. And, you know, it was just a little little bit of tension that Jim and I were thankfully not a part of and kind of knew that if it came down to it, he and I would just take off and summit the peak without them if we had to. Coming up, Mo and the team reached their precipitous campsite. So maybe you've heard there's a pandemic happening. And me, my relationship with nature is changing. I feel like I'm noticing things more. For instance, I work from home now and I put up a little bird feeder next to my window. So while I work, I have the company of songbirds. I never knew so many birds came through Wyoming, even in the winter. I'm about to break down and order a field guide so I know what kinds they are. Y'all, I'm turning into a bird watcher. Something about the company of those birds feels essential in a way it never would have before. What about you? Do you have a new midday walk habit? Maybe instead of drinks, you're meeting up with friends to go paddleboarding. Maybe you left the city for a place with more hiking trails. 
maybe it's like me, a new quiet relationship with birds. I want to know how the pandemic has changed you and nature. Leave a voicemail at 307-223-4368 and you'd really help us with an episode we're working on about nature and the pandemic. Again, that's 307-223-4368. I can't wait to hear from you. At the end of the first day climbing in the rain, Mo and her team reached a ledge at about 11 p.m. And because you're so far north, it's still light out. We didn't really need a headlamp yet. The ledge was about the size of a school bus, maybe. So you had plenty of room to feel safe and walk around. You still stayed tied in just in case, but it was pretty comfortable. And so we cooked a quick dinner. And at this point, I had had maybe two cups of water full the whole day in a granola bar. And I was so tired. I didn't really eat dinner. And my partner was pretty much the same. Pat and Taylor got there a little ahead of us. And so they had a little more time to relax. They ate a little more. They drank a little more. And then we kind of just settled in for the night. We were so tired. We got this amazing view and this peaceful night. It was pretty amazing. The Northern Lights actually came out, which was wild. They're not supposed to in August, clear night with the Northern Lights. And up until that point, everything was just, was going great. So at first you're so tired that you're just like, I don't care that I I don't have a sleeping pad, I'm out cold. And you do pass out for like the first hour. And then all of a sudden I woke up realizing that, oh, rocks are uncomfortable to sleep on. And we had kind of flaked the ropes out to make a little bit of a insulating pad cushion but ropes aren't that cushiony. And because I hadn't been drinking enough, I was kind of achy and crampy and just didn't feel stellar. But it's just such a wild landscape. You're up there and while you're climbing and while you're sleeping, these mountains are so ancient and they're just constantly falling down and they're kind of glued together with glaciers that are receding at any given point. And so you're just kind of surrounded by what sounds like fireworks from just rocks plummeting down the sides of these mountains into the glaciers below. And it's a little freaky because some of them sound pretty close and I guess you never know when something on your route could fall down. But it was crazy for how remote this was. You'd think it would be quiet and it was one of the noisiest places I've ever been. I don't think I ever sat there thinking, oh, it's so silent. I did wake up uh, before sunrise when there was that kind of glow and the boys were all still asleep and I just had, you know, the most amazing, beautiful, wild pee of my life off of this ledge, you know, into a thousand feet of air. So one thing that people always ask climbers, especially climbers who go on big balls and spend the night is, well, how do you How do you poop up there? And that's something that every climber at some point is gonna have to go through. And it's always gonna be awkward and there's never a good, easy, comfortable way to do it. Having to poop on this two day climb 
was something mm-hmm. that I was really dreading. You know, I've been lucky, like I said, most of my clients so far had been shorter, so I could just run into the trees and kind of do my business. But up here on this giant ledge, not only were there no trees for privacy, you have to poop in what's called a wag bag, which is basically a way that you can pack up your poop and waste and carry it out with you because you don't want to leave a nice steamy surprise for the next party that comes up. There's some climbers who will intentionally not drink, like or drink just barely enough to stay functioning so that you don't have to poop or pee and you just keep moving. I would I would say everyone should practice a wag bag before they need to before it's an emergency. Uh, I would also say for the whole for the pee thing too. I, the boys definitely have it so much easier, and yeah, I'm always a little jealous of that. But as far as the wag bag go, maybe that's another thing where pooping is the great gender equalizer because everybody has to poop the same awkward way. You kind of do your thing, but like it's kind of this ultimate shame of you still have to carry your poop with you the rest of the day. <laughs> um, and it's this big silver bag. You strap the outside of your pack so everybody who sees you also knows you have pooped and there's poop in that bag. That morning, Mo was ready for the second day of climbing. Jim and I just looked at each other as we're tying up and we're about to launch for the second day to get to the summit. And we were feeling pretty good. You know, we were nervous because the hardest climbing was ahead of us. But we were feeling pretty good. Pat and Taylor, they weren't feeling as good. They had kind of an interesting relationship. They had never climbed together before. You know, when you're in that mountain experience, you you want to be getting along with a person at the other end of your rope. And they got along well enough for that. And as we're about to take off, everyone's tied and ready to go. And Pat all of a sudden says, you know what, guys? I think I got to poop. And we all looked at him and we said, well, better now than later. And Pat said, don't worry, I brought a wag bag. And that was good news. If you didn't have a wag bag, I'm not sure what we would have done. Maybe packed it up in our old food bags or something. I didn't really want to have to think about that. So as Pat starts getting ready to poop, Taylor kind of sighs and goes, guys, I I think I have to poop too. And then here's something I learned about Taylor on this trip. I don't know if fear is the right way to say it, but Taylor doesn't like poop. He doesn't appreciate poop jokes. He doesn't like pooping in front of other people. He just doesn't like poop. So this was all of a sudden his worst nightmare coming true. There's four of us effective strangers stuck on this ledge. There's no privacy and he's gonna have to poop in front of us. So Pat being experienced goes first. And he says, let me grab the wag bag. And instead of a nice commercial finished wag bag um, you can buy them you know at the outdoor store it's usually silver and double bagged and it comes with toilet paper and wipes and so when pat said he brought the wag bag that's what we had pictured instead he pulls out a ziploc baggie and a sheet of plastic that kind of the kind of plastic that comes when you purchase deli meat from the deli and that's all you had 
And he looked at us and said, I've only got the one, Taylor, we're gonna have to share. And I think at this point, Taylor goes just pale and ghostly and clammy. And he's kind of hit a panic mode at this point because he's realized he's gonna have to share a wag bag with, with Pat. And I think on Pat's case, it was kind of the ultimate alpha move that he would poop first and it was his wag bag. And so we turned around politely and let Pat do his thing. There was a small boulder he could kind of hide behind, but it's, there's no pretending when you're on a space that small. Everyone knows what's going on. You know, I should add that while you're pooping, you have one of the most amazing views that you could ever see. You're looking out towards this expanse of unclimbed peaks. There's no roads, there's no trails, there's barely even airplanes going overhead because we're practically inside the Arctic Circle. It's just, it's true wilderness. There's glaciers everywhere. It's just beautiful. And so we're all enjoying these views while we're also listening to Pat do his duty. And then Taylor is just getting more and more nervous. Pat's not a rude guy, but it's still maybe an eight by eight inch sheet of plastic and there's no leaves up there. And so to be polite, he covered his package with a little sprinkle of grass so that Taylor kind of wouldn't have to look at it. But I think you can't forget that he's going to be pooping on top of somebody else's poop. And that's just weird. So Pat finished up and he just looks at Taylor and says, all right, you're up. And pretty much none of us can leave until poop shy, poop frightened Taylor does his thing. And he had such deep fear in his eyes as he knew he had to do. His worst nightmare was coming true and he was quite quick about it, but then he finished. I'll spare the details on his experience because it was very personal. But all of a sudden he realized not only did he use the wag bag second, but that meant he was also the one that would have to pack it up. So he very gingerly and very fearfully bundled up the package being as careful as possible not to touch it. He definitely gagged and dry heaved. He was not okay with this. He packed it into the Ziploc bag, sealed it up, and then handed it to Pat. And Pat just grinned and shoved it into the bag, being careful not to explode it everywhere. <laughs> but he placed it in the bag and bundled it up to be brought down on our way down. So we were able to leave it on the ledge, thankfully. We didn't have to carry it to the summit with us. But there it was safely deposited in this bag. After that, Taylor and Pat got along a lot better. I think they were good. I think that was this kind of rite of passage or initiation where Taylor was begrudgingly a real mountain climber now. 
there certainly was kind of a peace settled. And I think at that point, I mean, I think they honestly just probably felt better because when you had to poop, you had to poop, but you kind of can't think of anything else and you're probably irritable because you had to poop. Uh, so I think everybody just kind of relaxed. And kind of at that point too, we realized we were going to get to the summit. And that was cool, but you're so exhausted. I remember getting to the top and being like, I don't even care. Like Taylor said, hey, Mo, we have to like do a summit interview and take photos. And I was like, I don't care. I just want to get down. My feet hurt. <laughs> Everything hurts. Like, cool. We're at the top. It was kind of anticlimactic too. You're so tired. You go down the entire mountain in one push. So you do all 2000 feet backwards, rappelling on your ropes. And usually that takes between about five hours or so. And we ended up getting benighted, lost. We missed some stations. We had no water and no food. And until we got back to that ledge, which is well after dark, we only had my headlamp between the group of us. <laughs> and so I would say things just kept going wrong even after the summit. Back at Fairy Meadows, they slept. And then we kind of woke up in the early evening and Jim had brought a bottle of scotch. He had padded it with socks and bubble wrap and he, he brought this bottle of scotch to drink in celebration if we had summited and in sorrow if we didn't. But either way, we were drinking it. And so the very last night we were up in Fairy Meadows, we kind of dragged it. It was sunny. Again, we finally had this great weather. It's crazy. We had this gorgeous sunny evening and we dragged our camp chairs over to be looking up to the Lotus Flower Tower that we had just summited. And I just remember sipping that scotch and eating some cheese, eating all the food because the food that we didn't eat, we had to carry out. And there was just something so peaceful about having worked so hard for that goal or having been so scared so many times on the wall and like kind of this anticipation leading up to this scary task. And and it was over. And that's, I think, when it finally hit me what we had done. You know, as I'm looking up 3,000 feet above me at this granite summit, thinking, I've been there. We did that. And I think that was that was definitely my favorite part of the trip was just sipping scotch, hanging out with the marmots and watching the sunset. Our storyteller was Mo Beck. That expedition awakened a thirst in Mo for more long expeditions, and she's planning some now. You can see photos of Mo and the Cirque of the Unclimbables when you follow us on social media at Human Nature Pod. I'm Erin Jones. This episode was produced by Charles Fournier. Editing help came from Greg Ronco and Alex Schaefer. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Our executive producer is Micah Schweitzer. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's you.